So this afternoon, as with all of the afternoons during the retreat, we'll be um, doing what we call metta meditation. How many of you have never heard of metta? Thank you. So metta is a Pali word, which means loving kindness. And uh, one may think that this is a separate practice from mindfulness, but actually loving kindness is very much a part of the mindfulness practice. It's a quality of heart that is part and parcel of how we practice mindfulness. And it's a practice that the Buddha taught, uh, and it stems from a, 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 an incident in the, uh, in the texts where the Buddha was always, was in, in a way, a, a really radical figure of his time although he came from um, one of the higher castes, he was radical in the way he worked with beings from all castes, which was unheard of in his day. And he was always making fun of, of the Brahmins, who were the elite class. And so many of the suttas come out of his um, repartee or his debating with people from the Brahmin class. And one day a Brahmin came to him and said, you know, what you're teaching is no good and it's inferior to the teachings of, to our teachings. Because essentially uh, there's no provision for going to heaven. And the Buddha said, oh, but of course there is. And the Brahmin said, well, show me where in your teachings you have said that. And the Buddha said to him, uh, you, you will find heaven in this very life. And how will you find heaven through these four divine emotions? And these four divine emotions he called the Brahma-viharas, which was a kind of play on words making fun of the Brahmins. Because Brahma means uh, not only the, the upper, the best, uh, but it also means um, divine and sacred. And vihara, so the Brahma-viharas, vihara means abode, or dwelling, or place of, or, or home. And so he said, the Brahma-viharas can be attained right here in this very life, and they are metta, loving-kindness, uh, karuna, compassion, which is um, the emotion that uh, a heart of kindness or a heart of metta uh, produces when it meets with suffering of, of oneself or another. Uh, mudita, which is the joy for the joy of another. So when 
someone else succeeds or has something joyous in their lives instead of envy and jealousy and, uh, you know, a feeling of why not me, we have a feeling of great joy for the joy of another. And in this way, our joy is multiplied, as the Dalai Lama says. If we only have joy for ourselves, we only have one opportunity. If we have joy for the joy of all others, we multiply our chances for joy by six billion. So there's mudita, which is the joy for the joy of another. And then all of those three qualities are infused with wisdom, uh, upeka or equanimity, which is the quality of mind or heart that is able to live in all of the opposites and the extremes of being human, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, pain and pleasure, uh, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, all of what the Buddha called the worldly winds of this human life, to live in the midst of that with poise and balance and with a large view. So he said these four Brahma-viharas are his teaching of the way to get to heaven. So uh, this week we'll be, um, we'll be teaching essentially the practice of metta, which is a cultivation of a ground in our hearts that uh, is like mindfulness, a training. It's a training of the heart that allows the heart to open to unconditional love. And this training or this cultivation of the ground, this cultivation of the foundation of love, is done methodically by, um, we'll get to how it, how it is. There's a text called the Visuddhimagga, which is uh, translated as the path of purification, in which uh, the, uh, the practice of metta or the practice of loving kindness is described as a concentration practice. And at the beginning of the chapter on, on metta as a concentration practice, the author of this text, which, is, uh, which was written, um, I think, 500 years after the Buddha, he asks us to prepare for the practice of metta by sitting down and reviewing the disadvantages in hatred and the advantages in patience. Now, when I read that, I kind of did a jig. I did a dance. Because I expected him to say, review the disadvantages in hatred and the advantages in love. But he didn't say love. He said uh, patience. And I love that because it feels as if, if we are able to cultivate a heart of uh, patience, a quality of patience in the heart and mind. That loving kindness is essentially a natural outflow of this heart of patience. And so I offer that to you. It was, it's not part of the, um, the Buddha's discourses, and yet I think that it's an important um, addition to 
the teachings. So we review the disadvantages in hatred because he says it is in order for us to uh, develop loving kindness, hatred must be abandoned. And it is impossible to abandon uh, defilements or qualities of mind that are not known, and that's why we must review the disadvantages in hatred. And that we must also um, review the advantages in patience, because reaping the advantages of patience is not possible if we don't know patience, if we haven't cultivated patience. And I commend that to you because so much of our practice, so much of the mindfulness practice as well as the the metta practice requires that we cultivate patience, as you've probably already seen in just a few hours of practice. That as as the body and mind start to settle down, that we are... Um, restless, that the mind is pinging all over the place, that you know we're thinking about all of the things that we may have left undone or that we should have done, or you know the mind is kind of saying, oh, you should call this one, or you need to do this, or you need to do that, or thinking about something that somebody said, or just a million different ways that the mind wants to be either in the past or in the future, and, you know, someone even told me this morning in our meeting about worrying about uh, the effects of the, of the retreat already on, on her already, or on her already um, uh, what she thinks is, uh, is her natural inclination towards introspection. So the mind is always going back and forth and wanting to be in the past or in the future. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of that already today. So we are um, we're able in the metta practice to meet all of that with kindness and to meet it with some patience because we know that everything changes and that this, this in, in a way, this, these first couple of days on the short retreat are uh, the days of purification. That there's, a, there's a, a, a process of purification that must happen as we, as we settle the mind and the heart down. And loving kindness is a sine qua non. It's, a, it's an indispensable piece of the practice and so contributes to uh, the patience that's necessary for us to do this really radical practice of attention. We are not trained to attention. We are not trained to presence. And as Sharon said last night, this practice is a practice of um, cultivation, it's a practice of skill building. And so it, it, in a funny kind of way, 
the skills that we're building are the very skills that we need on which to build. So as we, uh, as we develop patience in order to work with what is arising in the mind and the heart, patience is being developed. And of course, once patience is developed, then loving kindness is a kind of natural, um, natural outgrowth of that mind of uh, patience. The practice that the Buddha taught for cultivating this mind of loving-kindness is a practice in which we um, address um, phrases and wishes of kindness to ourselves first. Because he said, you can travel the whole world looking for someone who deserves your love more than you do, and you will never find them. And I know there were a couple of questions this morning about self-criticism and self-judgment. And I don't think that there's anybody here who will say that you've never had a thought of self-criticism or a thought of self-judgment. And we as a community of color certainly know about internalized oppression. So we are, um, we kind of have a double dose of it. You know, it's, a, it's an illness anyway in the, in the culture. And yet people of color, I think as, a, as an oppressed uh, um, class of people are doubly imbued with, uh, with self-judgment and self-criticism. So this practice is particularly helpful in that. And so the Buddha said, since there is no one who deserves your love more than you, that's where we start. But strangely enough, the theory was that uh, we are more, most easily the the, the Uh, ability for loving kindness, this unconditional love. This is not love with attachment. This is not love with fear or clinging or controlling. This is unconditional love that is given simply because you exist. Not because anything is demanded of you. Not because there is anything that's needed in return not because there is something that you need to do to deserve it. And in some ways, uh, probably the largest enemy of loving kindness is doubt. Doubt that this is actually um, a natural quality of the human heart. Or one may believe it's a natural quality of the human heart, but believe it not that, except for me, right? I don't have it. Maybe everybody else has it. So it's a quality that, although we're saying that we're cultivating the ground for it, it doesn't mean that it's something that we need to get, but that actually 
what we're doing is stripping away all of the obstacles to the realization and the understanding that loving-kindness is part of our birthright, that it is a part of who we are. So we, we begin with ourselves, and as we go through the week, we will expand uh, to first what's called a benefactor, and we'll do ourselves in a benefactor today. And that benefactor in the texts is someone who brings a smile to our face someone who perhaps has been unconditionally good to you in your life, who has shown you this unconditional love. It could be a grandchild. It could be a teacher that you know or somebody that you've taken teachings from in this technological age that you've never met. I sometimes use the Dalai Lama as my benefactor. And then we move on to a dear friend and then to what we call a neutral person and then a difficult person so that the quality of loving kindness begins to grow and expand in us so that it includes all beings, even the ones with whom we're having difficulty. And why is that? Because loving kindness doesn't discriminate. Loving kindness is universal And although it feels very personal, it's impersonal. And we we extend loving kindness to even difficult beings in our lives because we understand through the review that we do of the disadvantages in hatred and the uh, benefits of patience that carrying these qualities in our hearts only harms us. It doesn't harm the subject of our hatred. It it embitters our hearts. And it uh, it has all of the um, negative effects on ourselves, not on the person that we're hating or wishing ill. And it's that wisdom and that recognition that allows us to develop loving-kindness in a way that teaches us patience and that teaches us the universality of this quality of mind and heart. So, um, the other piece of it is understanding the interconnection that we have with all beings. That all of the uh, ways in which we live is um, not separate from the existence of all other beings. And that we can't fall out of the web of life. So that what we put into this web will inevitably have consequences on our lives, on our minds, and on our hearts. 
And so our cultivation of loving kindness is built on that wisdom, that wisdom of connection. And I just wanted to read um, a letter that was sent to me by a woman named Sister Elaine Roulet, who was the chaplain of the prison hospital in which I worked for many years. And she and I became uh, great friends so that uh, when she left the prison as chaplain, she started an organization for um, women who were released from prison to help them uh, get jobs and training and all of that. And she asked me to be on the board, which I accepted. And then eventually I had to leave the board because of all of the other responsibilities that I had taken on. And so I wrote to her and said that I um, had uh, unfortunately had to leave the board. And this is the letter that she wrote to me. Dear Gina, when I received your confirmation that your busy schedule demanded your decision to leave the board of directors of Our Journey, Inc., I took time to reflect on my journey with you. My memory of our Technicolor Sunday prayer services filled my heart with joy and my eyes with tears. There we were, a Buddhist priest, a Catholic nun, a terrorist who didn't believe in God, inmates dying of cancer and AIDS, inmates who were chaplain aides, rolls from the nearby bakery that that lit up our chapel where we were not permitted to have candles. The scene in my mind was so profound that I was almost positive that we had stained glass windows where there were bars. Our Sunday trips to the inmate cells probably surpassed my trips to cathedrals and churches. I could not let this occasion go by without sharing some of my thoughts. You are truly a beautiful Buddhist priest, blah, blah, blah. All the struggles... All the struggles that churches and temples create in trying to make us all one were seen in the tapestry of those Sunday services. I do not know when our paths will cross, but I do know that the images and memories are so splendid and sacred that I had to write and thank you. By the way, I went to the library yesterday and took out a new book by Jack Cornfield, The Wise Heart. I read parts of it last night. It's a wonderful book, and I thought of you. So I shall close knowing I shall never close my relationship with you. Amen, amen, amen. Dearest Gina, I couldn't find your address until I looked into my heart, and there it was. And I read that letter because it was such a beautiful example of how love transforms everything, even prison cells. And what we had in common, Sister Elaine and I, was unconditional love for those beings that we were serving. And she and I felt very deeply the love that Um, could transform a really terrible place of oppression 
And so when we, when we cultivate this loving kindness, it has tremendous power. And so that's the, um, what Martin Luther King referred to when he said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I know that love is ultimately the only answer to mankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. I'm not talking about emotional bosh when I talk about love. I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. I have seen too much hate. I have decided to love. If you are seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. So this quality of loving kindness is a powerful quality. And without it, our practice of mindfulness is incomplete. And I know that when we try to cultivate it, what may come up is the very opposite. That all of the ways in which our hearts have closed, all of the ways in which we are uh, conditioned and habituated to aversion, to hatred, Sometimes we think for good reason. Only hurts us. So pay attention when you do this practice. Because when, when what comes up, as when the opposite comes up, it's a practice of purification. And purification is always followed by purity. Always. So that don't try to get some particular quality of mind or feel as if you have to produce or fabricate love, but just do the practice and have some faith that this quality of repetition, this quality of concentration, because metta, when we do the practice of repeating phrases, what will happen is the heart begins to open all by itself. There's nothing that you have to do or make happen. And again, like all of these other practices, it's a, it's a progressive practice that begins to open the heart as slowly as it needs to open, but it will inevitably open. So let's start now.
And what the Buddha said is that we should start by taking a comfortable seat. So do what is what will make you feel comfortable. Make the body feel comfortable. And there are two ways that metta is taught. One is the way I'm going to teach you. And the other way is to simply open the heart and radiate kindness. So we radiate kindness into all of the corners of the universe. Maybe during the week at some point we'll do that. But I'm going to teach you this other way, which is the way of real concentration, because it's focusing on phrases. So we focus first, today we're going to work with ourselves and a benefactor. And we're going to start with ourselves. And if you feel as if it's so difficult to send metta or loving kindness, these wishes to yourself, you can start with a benefactor. So if you, do, if you decide to do that, you choose a benefactor and you know, don't get hung up on whether it's the right benefactor, it's the good benefactor. How about just the good enough benefactor, right? So over the week, you can audition different benefactors if you want. But for each time that we do it, just for the concentration practice, you really want just one person. So make that choice. Or yourself. And you start by um, having a felt sense of yourself or the benefactor. So I'm going to say yourself, but if you, it's okay if you're using a benefactor to just substitute that in your own mind. So get a good felt sense of yourself or a visual sense of yourself at a time in your life when we, you were the most lovable. So it could be when you were a child, an infant, or right now. Maybe you've grown into this really amazingly lovable being. May it be so. And get a felt sense, or if you're not a visual, per- if you're not a visual person, get a felt sense. If you're a visual person, really call up a very clear picture of yourself. And what would you really wish deeply for yourself? There are four classical wishes from the texts. And I'm going to give you those four classical wishes, but with an invitation that if there is something else that would work for you, to please feel free to use it. But these are the four classical wishes. May I be safe from harm. 
So the wish for safety. And you can even imagine what it would be like to feel completely safe. And that's the wish that you have for yourself. May I be safe from all harm and danger. And the second wish is may I be happy and peaceful. Can you actually feel the happiness that you wish for yourself and the peace? And the third wish is, may I be healthy of body. And don't try to remember these because we'll post them. So just really pay attention right now in the present moment to what it's like to wish yourself that sincerely and deeply. Because you deserve it. No one is more deserving of your love than yourself. And the fourth, may I live with ease, meaning that you're not struggling with the conditions of life, but that you're living with some ease in your life without struggle. So there are four wishes, safety, peace and happiness, health, and ease. And I'm going to be silent for a few moments and just let you say that at a rhythm that feels pleasing, that feels good, that feels as if you can really take it in to your body and your mind and your heart. Safety, happiness and peace, health, and ease. And if you want to put your hand on your heart sometimes, that really helps to ground. So please feel free to do that or not. May I be.
And you can either stay with yourself or with your benefactor. But we're going to move on to the next being. If you are at yourself, the benefactor. And if you are at the benefactor and would like to move on to yourself, you can do so now. So again, getting a very clear picture of the benefactor, as clear as you can, or very clear. It's as if they're right here with you, right in your heart. And one way I like to send metta to the benefactor is also to imagine the benefactor sending his or her metta back to me so that I'm giving and I'm receiving. If that feels too complicated, it's okay. You don't have to do that. Just to send it. And so you can say, may you, and whatever the name of your benefactor is, be safe from harm. May you be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy, strong of body. And may you live with ease, free from struggle. Safety, peace and happiness, health and ease.
And whenever we close our metta practice, we always close by having the same wishes for all beings everywhere without exception. Omitting none, the sutta says. So we wish for all beings everywhere in all directions. May all beings be safe from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and strong of body. And may all beings live with complete ease. This is by Derek Walcott, who is a uh, St. Lucian uh, Nobel Prize winner for literature. And uh, we've been to St. Lucian when we were in St. Lucia. We're extremely proud of him. He's the, he's, uh, they say that St. Lucia has, because it's such a small place, it has the highest per capita. He's the only Nobel Prize winner on, Saint, on the island. He said they have the highest per capita Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> so, Derek Walcott. It's called Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to yourself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. So thank you. Are there any questions about metta? Or the practice? Yes, please. Hi. Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I can speak for myself. Is that enough? Okay. Um, so I thank you for the question, even though it's not meta about meta. I'll answer it. Um, I started bowing when I was in 
Asia. Uh, so I, I practiced in a few different places in Asia, in Japan and Thailand and Burma and Tibet. And in Asia, everybody bows pretty much who are Buddhists. And I really didn't have any feeling for it until I went there and uh, the practice felt very profound to me. And I just found myself one day on the floor, bowing. I didn't intend to. And essentially what I realized was that um, when we enter a space like this, uh, that we are bringing our best selves in a way. And what I felt I was bringing and really I was letting go of something and really bringing something else. And what I was letting go of was a sense of high pride. And what I was really beginning to bring was a sense of humility. And there is something about letting go of one's ego in a healthy way. Because, you know, in Western psychology, it's helpful and healthy to build an ego. You know, so a a sense of self-worth and self-appreciation. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the sense of self that really is an obstacle to realization. And so the bowing felt like a letting go of that and a humility in touching my forehead to the floor. And uh, now when I bow, and I bow three times, I'm taking refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and the Sangha. So in the awakened mind, the possibility of my own mind being awake. And uh, the Dharma, the, the teachings of the Buddha, and that's large D and small d, that there is a, there is a natural unfolding that happens in life which we call dharma. The, it's, a, it's an inexorable law of the way things are, that we set conditions and causes in our lives, and those bear fruit. So that if we, if we come to life with an open, honest, and clear heart, then what will be returned to us is openness, honesty, and clarity. And if we come to life with... Um, disconnection and um, confusion and hatred that's what will will be returned to us so I take refuge in that understanding and I also take refuge in uh, the community of beings who uh, like me uh, wish for freedom wish for liberation and are not only wishing for it but are also uh, doing the prescribed practices to realize it. So I take refuge in those three, in the the possibility of my mind and heart being awakened, in the teachings and the the natural law, and in the community that is uh, practicing and that offers me great support. And that's what I do each time when I bow three times. And it's a process of, of 
uh, letting go more than it is a process of accumulating. It's a process of letting go everything that is an obstacle to that. Savannah. When you gave the instructions for Metta, mm-hmm. you talked about bringing an image of yourself that was most lovable. Mm-hmm. I started with my toddler, a toddler self, mm-hmm. and it was really easy, it was great, and then it turned into an image of my adolescent self, mm-hmm. which probably not the most lovable, uh-huh. but it was about from the great loving kindness and it was hard to offer just safety mm-hmm. um, when all the pain was coming up and so I didn't know whether I should try to stay with a more easeful time or how to work skillfully with this more difficult so what Savannah is saying is that when she um, she started out offering metta to the toddler who she was, and that that was relatively trouble-free, and then uh, that toddler turned into an adolescent, which wasn't so trouble-free, and so some difficulty was coming up with respect to that and she wasn't sure whether to just stay with the metta or to offer compassion for the adolescent uh, because it didn't feel like the metta was enough was that what you said and so she was wondering how to work skillfully with that so you know our practice is awareness and presence and um, we have a tremendous amount of innate wisdom. So sometimes it might be more skillful to simply stay with the metta and just keep offering it and see what happens. And yet, if something else is happening, it may feel a bit... Um, uh, forced to not address what is arising. And if what feels like a natural kind of movement is to offer compassion to the pain or the suffering of that, then it's perfectly fine. Because met, uh, compassion or karuna is a, is a natural emanation of metta when it encounters suffering. So if it feels as if um, to offer compassion, and you obviously have had um, the training in it before, uh, and you feel as if that's what it should be met with, and it's a perfectly wonderful and skillful thing to do. And then see what happens, and then perhaps you can come back to to the metta. But just to know that... um, when we move away from the practice that we're offering, that 
we're emphasizing then the cultivation ground of metta and de-emphasizing the concentration ground of metta. And that's okay. But just to know that that's what you're doing. Okay? Yes, please. Which part? Oh, okay. So you're asking about what I just said about... um, I'm repeating because we're recording, and so um, the recording can't hear you. Um, So you're asking about what I just said about emphasizing and de-emphasizing. So what I said was that... So remember when I was speaking before, I was talking about um, the fact that metta has two different... um, tracks. One is the cultivation of this heart of kindness and the and the byproduct of it is because of this offering of phrases over and over and over and over again, the same phrases in a in a uh, rhythmic cadence that it has a quality of concentration that also gets built. And what I was saying to Savannah is that if she um, uh, moved away once she sees this, once she's beginning to experience or what's arising is the pain or the suffering of a past experience. And she moves away from the phrases of metta and offers compassion. That that's a perfectly wonderful and fine and skillful practice to do. And to know that at that point you're moving more towards the cultivation of the ground than towards the concentration. It's just what's being emphasized. And it's not that one's better or one's being done to the exclusion of the other. It's just what's being emphasized. Yes, please. So are you saying that the phrase, when you start to move into the suffering, the phrase is important to continue the phrase? It's not that it's... Well, it's, it's helpful to continue the phrases, but the, but the feeling of suffering may be so overwhelming that, what, that the natural response is compassion. And, of course, there are practices for compassion, which you know, we'll, maybe we'll get to uh, throughout the week. Uh, so what she was proposing is that she move from the phrases of kind, loving-kindness of metta to the phrases of compassion. And when we do that, we're, because we're now moving to a different practice, the concentration isn't so emphasized, you know, because concentration comes, is developed or cultivated from the constant one-pointedness of mind, right? It, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but I, I won't go into it right now. But So when she offers the phrases of compassion, she's moving away from the emphasis on concentration and really towards the emphasis on cultivation. Yes, please. And that's the last question we can ask. When you started, you talked about um, the writing around um, looking at patients, the benefits of patients and the, the, the hatred. 
disadvantages of hatred. Yes, thank you for the question. So she was asking about the, what's your name? Gina. Gina. <laughs> I can remember that. So Gina was asking about um, the, what I was talking about before, about from the Vasudhimaga, the, the recommendation that to start your metta practice, that you um, start with the reflecting on the disadvantages and hatred and the advantages and patience and the benefits of patience and whether it's something I do regularly, and it is something I do regularly. The other practice that I do when I enter into metta practice is contemplating my goodness, which is a really excellent way of meeting that mind that is critical and self-judgmental. To remember something that you did, and it could be the simplest thing, a kindness that you extended to someone, um, a, a kind word, or listening. Listening is definitely a part of metta, which is also part of our mindfulness practice, is the ability to listen really clearly and listen really deeply in the present moment. So, um, the, but I digress. The, the, uh, the, the, the practice of really looking at the disadvantages of hatred and the benefits of patience, and also just spending a couple of moments contemplating some goodness in you, and you can find goodness in yourself. Whether it's a kind word or a listening moment when you fully listen to someone. And I've, I've got to tell you that my husband called while I was preparing for this, and I half listened to him, and I kind of chuckled, because I thought, here I am, you know, preparing metta, and I'm kind of writing the metta and listening to him on the phone, and I thought, you know, and so I stopped and really turned to what he was saying. So, you know, it comes up, but you work with it, right? And you, you observe it. You observe your own behavior, and you observe when you move away from it, because that's just as helpful as noticing when you're in it. You know, so if you notice how it is when you're not in metta, that will really, that's part of reviewing the disadvantages and hatred because it's a kind of aversion that makes me want to do two things at the same time, right? I'm averse to him calling right in the middle of my preparation. And instead of just stopping and saying, you know, really listening with love and kindness, I'm trying to do two things at the same time. And I caught myself, but I, but it happened, right? So um, all of these practices of doing the reflection as well as um, uh, really reviewing your own goodness is a really beautiful practice to do. And you'll fall in love, as Derek Walcott recommends. You know, you'll peel your own image from the mirror and feast, sit, and feast on your life. Thank you for your questions. They're beautiful. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.